We're talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. Hey, it's Hamilton Today. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Will Weber is on the board. Will Erskine bucking the guests. In the newsroom, Dinah Weeks and Dave Fordard. In a world filled with burnout, here's something you don't have to think about. Here's Scott Wait a minute. Is that, is that a slight? What, what, what does he mean by that? What, is, what, 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 is, what is he talking about? Good afternoon. It is Hamilton Today. I'm Scott Thompson. Uh, 900 CHML in Hamilton, 980 CFPL in London. Feel free to jump into the fun. Love to hear from you. Send us a note, Scott Thompson at 900CHML.com. All right. Uh, big story. We're hearing lots about it. Uh, Canadian troops are going to train Ukrainian forces. Um, that's it happening in the UK. They're not actually going over uh, to Ukraine or uh, or any of that. Many have said that uh, this is uh, just a distraction from the fact that uh, also today in a House of Commons committee uh, meeting, there is uh, the Ukraine ambassador to Canada uh, questioning as to why um, turbines that uh, are helping Russia, um, I guess, uh, weaponize weaponize energy as uh, as our uh, foreign affairs minister says um, why they are going to Russia and in not some other way of helping or or energy to to Ukraine or weaponry as whatever it needs or such so as that all is going on uh, in front of the uh, cameras right now Anita Anon uh, our defense minister is talking about uh, over 200 uh, Canadian Air Force personnel are deploying to the United Kingdom uh, where they will train uh, Ukrainian forces to uh, to help them out there. All right, so we're going to play you a couple of clips of uh, Anita Anon and 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 why this is all going on now, and uh, specifically what is going on, what types of training. The activities of our Canadian Armed Forces are going to be uh, relating to frontline combat, weapons handling, first aid, field craft, patrol tactics, and include the law of armed conflict, which is a mandatory course in the training session. All right, and more on, uh, and again, this is uh, troops going to the United Kingdom to do training there. Uh, for uh, troops that will be sent into the field. Here's the Defence Minister. We have now entered a new and very dangerous phase of this conflict, with Putin engaging in protracted attempts to inflict long-term damage on Ukraine and its people. Canada is committed to supporting Ukraine's short, medium and long-term defence needs. Uh, and many are asking why now, why today, this announcement? When we paused our military training and capacity building operations in Ukraine under Operation Unifier in early February, I made a commitment to resume these operations whenever and wherever possible. All right, that is uh, Anita Anon, the Defense Minister who uh, is um, uh, doing interviews, what have you, today, talking about how Canada is sending, I believe, sending 225 uh, troops to the United Kingdom. They will be used to uh, train other Ukrainian uh, uh, fighters and such, or those that are going to help uh, Ukraine uh, in the Russian invasion of Ukraine. 
so that is what their mission is there. Uh, many are asking why this is happening today, especially as Ukraine's ambassador to Canada is uh, now uh, talking to a group of MPs uh, at a House of Commons committee, uh, trying to make it clear her country's disappointment, Ukrainians' uh, disappointment, over Canada's decision to allow pipeline equipment that was in Montreal for repairs to be returned to state-controlled energy giant in Russia despite war-related sanctions. Uh, oddly enough, this is all happening, this announcement, on the same day that, uh, um, and you might remember, uh, Ukraine President uh, Zelensky was very upset knowing that uh, Canada was not going to honor these sanctions and instead let this let this uh, uh, turbine service agreement uh, continue. Um, I, I, the Justin, uh, Justin Trudeau's explanation was, well, you know, they're, um, if they don't have it, they can't provide uh, gas to uh, Europe. And of course, uh, turbine or no turbine, um, uh, obviously Russia is doing just that. They're using energy to uh, weaponize what is going on uh, in in Ukraine and such. Uh, the Foreign Affairs Minister Jolie said, uh, we called their bluff. I'm not sure exactly what that means. Because at the end of the day, uh, the turbine's allowed to go through, and and there's still no more gas going into into Ukraine. So I'm or, or the rest of Europe for that matter. Sorry. So I, I'm not sure what calling your bluff meant or what the real purpose of any of that was. Um, but it is obvious that today uh, Ukraine is asking Canada in the House of Commons why. Uh, in fact, these uh, this turbine service agreement was allowed to continue, uh, especially during sanctions. Again, um, Canada let it go. Russia. I, I remember Justin Trudeau saying it was a tough decision to make, but if they don't get these these turbines, they can't provide gas to Europe. And again, uh, Melanie Jolie saying that this is just further proof that Russia is. Um, is using energy as a weapon. And I don't think Canada needed to provide another example of that uh, right at this moment. But uh, that's where we are, and that's what's going on today. So we're going to try to cover uh, all of those stories or that story as we move forward. Uh, more information coming out about uh, other aspects in the news. We'll talk about that coming up a little later on uh, as well. And uh, don't forget, always looking for your input. You can send us a note, Scott Thompson at 900CHML.com. And the phone lines are always open. Open at 905-645-3221, star 9900 on your cell. Realtors in the Hamilton-Burlington area seeing the cooling trend that everybody's talking about in housing. We'll talk about that coming up moments from now. We remember it was not long ago when housing prices, prices of cottages too, all sorts of stuff like that, just going through the roof. And uh, especially towards the tail end of the pandemic, obviously a slight correction has been happening now as we're seeing interest rates go up and uh, home sales uh, slow down compared to what they were. Is it a something to be concerned about or just a correction that was badly needed? Uh, obviously, we're seeing, uh, seeing this cooling trend in uh, local residential home sales as well. Let's bring in Lou Periano, uh, president of the Realtor Association of Hamilton Burlington and is with us now. Lou, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. Great. Yeah, good to be with you. 
Uh, all you have to do is talk to a real estate agent. They will tell you, yeah, things are, are way down. That being said, Lou, uh, we know the froth that was uh, in this market and how un- out of control it was getting. Is this a correction? How, how do you view this, uh, where we are today? Well, you know, it's very difficult to time the market, be it stocks or real estate. And there's some interesting uh, statistics that uh, came out of our, our July uh, stats. And, uh, for example, um, one of the hotspots seems to be Niagara have an average price increase of 13.3% over, over June. Uh, for detached homes was uh, 18%, and for apartments was uh, 17%, uh, which is consistent with Burlington being up 14%. So, you know, you really don't want to generalize. You want to get one of our experts at the Realtors Association of Hamilton Burlington, one of our members, uh, to uh, guide you through this. Because you may be thinking of making a move. You may think it's time uh, to go or not. Uh, if you're a seller, I guess if I was in Niagara region as a seller, I'd be, I'd be pretty happy. But as a buyer, uh, there's opportunities elsewhere. Uh, how do you explain what happens, like, for example, something in the, that you're seeing in Niagara right now? How do you explain that within the world you're living in? Yeah, you know, there's so many uh, variables uh, that you could consider, including, you know, employment, uh, uh, just, just uh, you know, what was the price to begin with. Um, I mean, the de- detached home in Niagara is not cheap. We're looking at mm. uh, $1.17 So you can't explain it by, you know, it's cheaper to go there. That's why you need a local person. I, I, I am not an expert in every single area. We cover 2,500 square kilometers in our association, and this changes from month to month. So if, if you wanted to know something about, get somebody in the area and have them do a deep dive into this because um, there can be any number of reasons. And, of course, it depends whether you're a buyer or a seller, you know, where you want to uh, focus mm-hmm. on. Exactly, and demographics and, and just, you know, whatever that community or that uh, town or region happens to be going through uh, at the time. So, um, obviously, we're seeing interest rates go up. Uh, that's cooled things down a little bit. Uh, but year to year, you're still up from where you were. Uh, from what I understand, things are – how would you judge year to year to year to year uh, yeah, looking we're, at we're where we are? still over last year, maybe 2 3% on average. Um, but, you know, averages can be deceiving. As I say, uh, you, you really need to, you know, bury and, and just drill down into one particular area to know what's going on. However, um, one of the interesting things that came up in the last couple of days I noticed was the Bank of England. The Bank of England has decided to scrap their what their equivalent of their stress test is. So they call it an affordability test. And the sanity prevails here. And uh, the Canadian government decides to do something similar. You can imagine the effect on the market. Uh, I would say that people would qualify for maybe 40%, up to 40% more than they are right now. So that would have an impact on the market. So I I guess what I'm saying is if you can afford to buy a house, now might not be a bad time to get out there and and get it because prices have softened considerably in in some areas. And... um, you never know. Wild card, the government is always the wild card. And if they, you know, decide to eliminate that, there's going to be another little mini uh, gold rush, I would say. Um, also, notwithstanding the fact that I've noticed a couple of uh, lenders have actually reduced rates in the last week. So all these are all these variables come into play. Will it stay? We don't know. 
uh, you know, we'll, we'll go month by month and see if it's a trend or just an anomaly. And at the end of the day, Lou, uh, there still is relatively high demand and a lower supply. I mean, that's not going away anytime soon. That's so true. Although, when you talk about supply, um, you know, as, as you know, we go by uh, number of months of inventory. So right at the moment, uh, the number of months of, of inventory is uh, quite high relative to what it's been. In January, we had three weeks of inventory, meaning that if every house on the market at that time was going to sell at the pace it was selling, everything would be sold out in three weeks. Now we're well over three months. So this is very encouraging for, uh, for you know, for selection. And as I say, well, it's, will it last? I, you know, who knows? But right at the moment, if you're a buyer and you can, you can get it done, I would seriously consider, you know, getting out there. And, and, and again, uh, these trends only go for so long. As you said, it depends on, on the, the, actually the wind direction, it seems, at times. Um, but how do you explain the fact that there are more listings coming on? I mean, those aren't drying up. Yeah, it's a combination of things. One is the interest rates, of course, that discourage some buyers. Uh, the other thing is that when interest rates were lower, people had pre-approved mortgages. So they rushed out, they bought it before their pre-approved interest rate right. expired. And now we've got a bit of a lull. Right. All right. So any advice for those who are thinking of um, going in or staying out? What would you say? Well, again, if you're a buyer, you know, take a look at the different areas and the different types. For example, apartments have done very well. Apartments have uh, increased in value and uh, townhouses. There's a big demand for townhouses. They really haven't slipped much in pricing. But if you can afford uh, a little bit more, uh, there seems to be some real opportunity in, in detached homes. In various areas, Burlington went from 1.668 to 1.402, or off uh, almost 16% June, uh, July over June. So, hey, if you can afford it, talk to one of our ex- experts. That's, that's the bottom line. You know, you, you, you really need guidance here because it is so varied. Uh, this is obviously where you need some uh, local adv- uh, local advice. Lou Piriano, uh, Piriano with us, president of the Realtor Association of Hamilton, Burlington, talking about where the market is right now. Uh, thanks so much, Lou. Be well. Been a great pleasure. You too. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. Every time we get Christian on, we ask him to talk about one thing, and then by the time we get him on, something else is developed. And we'll see if we can squeeze as much in as we can here. Christian Leprec with us, professor at both the Royal Military College of Canada and Queen's University, fellow at the McDonnell-Laurie Institute, and with us now. Christian, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. Yes, I am. Good afternoon, Scott. So your thoughts on the defense minister's announcement today about the Canadian troops being sent to train? Yeah, so you're absolutely right. So this is an offset to some of the criticism that Canada has incurred on the turbines. That's also why the minister, uh, like the, why the prime minister minister didn't announce it at the time of the NATO summit, because I think they saw that the turbines were going to incur uh, uh, some wrath and that they would need an offset there. I think it's also a good compromise from the government's perspective, because of course there's a significant electoral constituency among liberal voters that never want to send weapons to anyone anywhere, regardless of uh, what my what people might be invading them and endangering them. And so I think this is sort of a way to sell to those voters that Canada, um, you know, because Canada of course has been criticized for providing relatively little in terms of actual Canadian capabilities, uh, that Canada is uh, doing the heavy lifting on the other piece, which is sort of, of course, the 
human skills. And we can see that, you know, all the talk about weapons notwithstanding, of course, the reason I think why the Ukrainians have stood up so valiantly and resiliently in light of Russian aggression has been very much as a result of the op unifier training they've received between 2015 and 2022, some 35,000 troops that taught them everything from first aid to sort of strategic planning and uh, and Western agile force structure. And that's, uh, I think we've seen that really bearing fruit here. So I think the announcement here is sort of a, a, an, a, an easy sell for the government uh, to also the liberal electoral constituency in terms of uh, uh, training people to defend themselves, but without Canada providing the weapons uh, that they would actually need to do so. Is that a bigger story today than the Ukraine ambassador to Canada uh, meeting with uh, officials today in the House of Commons regarding this committee on on the release of uh, of these gas uh, turbines that are obviously a service contract with Canada uh, for the Nord Stream One pipeline supplying Germany with uh, with natural gas? Is is what are your thoughts on on these turbines? Should they have been released and the position Canada is in? Well, so clearly the announcement and the timing here are hardly coincidental. So this mm-hmm. is clearly the government trying to get out ahead of that story and being able to sort of get its narrative out and its spin and that this and assuming that this will be a bigger story um, than uh, the ambassador sort of uh, lodging uh, his complaints. Look, I mean, I think the uh, turbine story has been widely misconstrued um, in the sense that um, not returning the turbines would have um, put into serious risk Canada's most important anchor air ally uh, on the continental European continent, uh, that is to say. Germany and weakening Germany can't possibly be either in Canada's, in NATO's, in the EU's, or in Ukraine's interest. Uh, and so, in that sense, um, it, I would say that the real criticism here is that Canada wrote its sanctions regime in a very unfortunate way because if Canada had coordinated with the European Union, where those turbines are specifically exempt from the sanctions regime, then the government wouldn't be in this trouble to begin with. So, this was really a mistake mm. on Canada's part, I would say, in the way that it wrote its sanctions regime to begin with. So at the end of the day, uh, justified for Ukraine's ambassador to be in the House of Commons today, and and what would their reaction be to, to that explanation? Well, I think Ukraine needs to be a little bit careful because Ukraine is basically trying to use extortion methods a little similar to what Russia is doing, but basically trying to constrain the sovereignty of countries such as Germany uh, by encouraging Canada to try to hold on to that turbine. And that's simply not how uh, mature international allied countries deal with one another. We enable one another to make our own sovereign decision making. Canada is enabling Ukraine to make its own sovereign decision in terms of defending itself, in terms of holding hopefully defeating Russian aggression and in terms of putting Ukraine in a strong negotiation position. And so in the same way, I think Ukraine needs to respect that Canada and Germany need to make their own sovereign decisions as to what is in their interest when it comes to energy security. Uh, the Foreign Affairs Minister Jolie said that uh, they called uh, Putin's bluff. It's proof that he's weaponizing uh, energy. Your thoughts on that position? Uh, yeah, look, I think uh, this is the minister essentially echoing the uh, the remarks that the German chancellor has been 
giving on this topic, especially in Germany. Um, and the German Chancellor is going to come to Canada on the 22nd and 23rd of August to Quebec and to Eastern Canada to convince Canadians that they need to do a lot more on energy security. And then not doing so is putting uh, European stability, prosperity, democracy, and security at serious risk. And so I think this is probably the foreign affairs minister starting to warm up Canadians to the fact that they might have to come to grips with the fact that sort of this naive opposition uh, to liquefied natural gas and pipelines and so forth that we've had, um, uh, probably we need to change our discourse somewhat. Uh, so I think this is uh, it, it, certainly what the minister is saying is uh, surprisingly closely aligned uh, with uh, the lines that we've heard from the German chancellor and from the German foreign minister. So it suggests oh, that they're oh. certainly talking to one another. All right, so let's go back to what we were originally going to talk to you about, and that was uh, obviously a couple of days ago, a key Al-Qaeda leader taken out related to 9-11, done through a drone strike. How significant is this, um, specifically the amount of time that's gone by since uh, 9-11 and such? Uh, Your thoughts? I think it's very significant. It's significant because I think the Americans are called the Taliban's bluff and showed what hypocrites they are, having said they're not going to harbor terrorists. And of course, here's uh, Al-Zwahiri living sort of right in the middle of sort of the posh district of, uh, of Kabul. It's also the Americans showing that they are still able to engage. Um, uh, the, this is what's known as the over-the-horizon strategy. It's the continuation of the decapitation campaign that the Americans had uh, uh, deployed in Afghanistan. But of course, it's also the continuation of extrajudicial killings. And it shows the challenges that the U.S. continues to face uh, when confronted with non-state actors and state actors that don't play by the rules. And that the U.S. believes that its security is uh, is at stake here. Will it have a big tactical impla- impact uh, per se? No, but certainly Al-Zwahiri has been making a lot of videos uh, in recent weeks and months. And so it suggested that he was in a much more urban and safer environment. And so if nothing else, it has taken out the Zwahiri propaganda machine. Um, and that had been a formidable machine for decades. Uh, many commented on uh, the mass exodus of uh, allies out of Afghanistan and what that meant to the area and such uh, and, and what would happen to it. What about the technology and what was used and the method that was used to, to do this? What does that say about where we are? I think it's uh, that the Americans have, it's it's a clear signal that if you harm Can- Americans, and I mean, this is somebody who for decades had plotted to harm Americans. I mean, he started by going to jail as a young man for uh, for plotting to overthrow the Egyptian government, uh, however sort of authoritarian, dictatorial it, uh, it, it was. Um, so uh, so this is somebody who's for, who has many decades of proven track record of trying to kill and harm Americans and American interests back to the uh, embassy bombings in Africa in 1998, uh, the USS Cole, 9-11, um, and several plots sort of since then, and sinister mm. plots uh, of mass murder. Uh, so I think the uh, um, this is certainly somebody who uh, um, who I think the Americans want to, as a, as a way of deterrent show, you harm Americans, uh, we're going to have you on our radar and we will find and get you. Uh, Scott, I'm afraid I'm going to have to go. Nope, we're out of time, too. Christian Leprac, professor of both the Royal, uh, Royal Military College of Canada and Queen's University, fellow at the McDonald laurie Institute. Thank you for the time. When there's an issue, Scott is all in on getting to the heart of it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CXML.
if you've been any if you spent any time in Hamilton over the past several years, uh, you you know a very exciting time for Hamiltonians is is when the CAA list of worst roads came out, and you know we were never concerned whether we were going to make the list or not. It was how many times you would make the list and how high up the list you would get, and um, you know it kind of year after year after year after year has kind of been like a running joke, and nothing really seems to be getting done. Surprise. Uh, so fast forward to today, mayoral candidate Keenan Loomis is announcing his plans for fixing roads in the hammer. Keenan Loomis is with us, Hamilton mayoral candidate. Uh, Keenan, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. Thanks, Scott. I am doing very well. Thanks for having me on. So before we get to your plan, uh, Bob Bertina said that uh, the, the city needs a complete plan, something from, you know, all corners. Uh, Andrew Horvath said uh, we've got to get the Fed, uh, federal government and the provincial government to contribute to this. What are you going to do or, or say that's different here? Well, what we need to do is, and, and what we're hearing at the doors, um, not only that uh, Hamiltonians want change, but they want a champion uh, of uh, you know somebody who can fix the roads here in Hamilton. It's costing us all. We know that it's costing our economy. It's costing us as individuals, as, as drivers, and it's uh, imperiling our safety as well. And so, obviously, yes, we need to be uh, championing Hamilton at uh, higher levels of government. Uh, but what we need to do uh, first and foremost is spend our dollars more wisely. And there was an auditor's report that was released last year at the city of Hamilton that outlines 25 ways in which we could do better at, uh, at maintaining our roads. Uh, little things um, uh, such as preventative maintenance um, that we're not doing correctly uh, and big things such as not holding contractors accountable. And we're allowing uh, substandard uh, roads to, to uh, be, um, you know, uh, paved on our streets and we're not asking for uh contractors to be accountable for the 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 lack of you know quality uh workmanship that they're doing keenan i've i've uh, been jumping on uh, this train for for quite a while now and um you know i've come to the conclusion for the last several decades we're just not interested in building anything whether it's new or repairing the old infrastructure you know i, I love it when we hear lines like build back better why do we have to do that uh because well nobody wanted to build in the first place is it a priority to fix roads when you know many are looking towards the extreme and and i i believe there's a mix here room for everybody you know of 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 more uh pedestrian friendly areas the cars the enemy is fixing roads a priority i mean it's obviously a necessity but for some yeah. uh they have no interest in this well it, it is a part of our vision zero which of course aims to reduce uh, fatalities and injuries on our roads i mean you think about how difficult it is to cycle around um, Hamilton when you have uh, terrible roads. And of mm. course, you know, the, the fact that drivers are having to swerve at the last minute and imperiling pedestrians. So I think that this is definitely a big part of it. But again, a lot of it is just that, you know, we're not spending our money wisely. Um, and it's, it's a matter of being able to get more out of uh, those dollars. And then, of course, a, again, be able to uh, champion uh, Hamilton at higher levels of government. And I'm the only candidate that is going to be able to do that. Uh, what can we be spending our money on better? What could we, where could we be taking resources from and better using them? Well, like I said, we're, so we're accepting substandard work from contractors. Uh, we're getting five to 10 years 
of, of life out of something that should be uh, giving us 15 to 20 years. And of course, that means that we're not able to address uh, as many uh, kilometers of roads as uh, we mm. need to. Um, we're not doing the, the bare minimum when it comes to preventative maintenance. Um, we're not sealing cracks, for example. Something really, really easy um, and simple is to, you know, in, put uh, tar in the, in the middle of the cracks to prevent water from getting in. We haven't been doing that. So, again, there are 25 uh, recommendations uh, that the auditor uh, laid down last yet last year, and nothing has been done. We have not had any uh, politicians or any of our leaders uh, ask for any accountability, ask for an update on this report, and nobody has championed this this issue. And like I said, I, I can't understand why when we are going to nearly every single door, and the message we are getting is change city hall and fix the damn roads. There you have it, Keenan Loomis, Hamilton mayoral candidate, uh, with a plan to fix the roads. We've been talking about it for an awfully long time. Is it time to finally get it done? Keenan, thanks for the time. Good luck moving forward. Thanks. Thanks, Scott. All the best. We have heard over the course of the last year uh, a couple, I think maybe three major deals uh, being announced uh, with Premier Ford and Prime Minister Justin Trudeau uh, in regard to uh, electric vehicle plants in, um, I believe it's three major situations across uh, this province. Is this the future of the auto industry in Ontario? We certainly know what it means to this province. Let's bring in Peter Fries, Professor of Mechanical Automotive and Materials Engineering at the University of Windsor, and is with us now. Peter, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. I'm just fine. Thanks very much, Scott. It's great to talk to you. So we certainly know uh, the impact that uh, the auto industry has on uh, Ontario, and, and certainly the same for the United States and, uh, and Mexico and such. Is this the future, these deals these, the, that have been just announced? Is this going to transform uh, our auto industry? Well, okay, a couple of, let me unpack that just for a minute. These kinds of deals have been made for decades. Mm-hmm. Uh, basically, no major automotive industry investment has occurred anywhere in the last 30 or more years without a government participation. Um, so that's one point. But yes, the the kinds of investments you've seen in the last few weeks and months in Ontario uh, and Quebec with the uh, battery plant in Windsor, the battery components factory in Chatham, Ontario, the, the materials plant in Kingston, and another materials plant in, in Quebec. Uh, those are the future. They, they help secure the future of Canada's auto industry for decades to come. Is there a clear path uh, where the automotive industry is going? Is, for example, EVs, is this it? Is there much evolution that can be made here? Uh, is it refining what we already know? Is this the future or do we know yet? No, I think it, I think it is the future. Um, I was asked the other day, is it, you know, is, are we still in the adopter phase, early adopter phase? I don't think we are. Mainstream consumers are now considering electric vehicles as a viable alternative for any automotive purchase that they make. Now, not every electric car can do everything that every IC engine car can do yet, but that day I think is coming. And uh, so, yeah, we're, 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 we have an electric future in store for us and, um, and all the things that that entails. 
So is the future about um, uh, refining this technology, or is there something new, a new fuel, a new whatever on the horizon? Or does this look like this is the path? Well, uh, again, I think that the future is electric. Yeah. Um, but, I, I, you know, I, I, it seems to me that the, the electric vehicle right now is about where the IC engine vehicle was in, say, about 1940. We know mm-hmm. how to make it. It's safe. It's reliable. We can predict the performance. They're becoming more and more affordable for the average person, and that's great. But there is a heck of a lot of innovation yet to go. There are new battery chemistries to be explored, uh, new electric motor configurations to be explored. Um, Structural uh, integrity of the vehicle is going to change a lot because an electric vehicle is... I mean, while it is fundamentally the same as any other kind of vehicle, it has a couple of major differences. It's got the very heavy battery, which is fairly massive, uh, usually built into the floor of the vehicle. So that changes the crash uh, parameters of the vehicle and all those sorts Mm. of things. And then, of course, there's autonomous driving, which is not the same as electric mobility, but the two are connected. And so there, there's a lot of evolution to come. There's a heck of a lot of R&D to be done in the next 20, 30, 40 years. How will the manufacturing and assembly of these vehicles change? We certainly know how, you know, what, what a, a current automotive plant looks like. How will, it, how will it change? Well, an electric vehicle has uh, a, a many, many fewer. That's not a very good phrase. It has... Mm-hmm fewer uh, moving parts than an internal combustion engine vehicles. For example, it has only a simple gearbox. And so it doesn't have a complicated transmission with hundreds or thousands of small mechanical components. It's got a simple gearbox with just one or two uh, gear ratios. The electric motor itself is is actually mechanically a very simple thing. It's, it doesn't have lots and lots of moving parts like, a, like mm-hmm. an engine. Does. And so the the powertrain part of a car is going to change a lot. Um, a lot of companies that are uh, specialized in internal combustion engine components are having to revamp their whole product line because a lot of the parts that they make right now just won't be on future cars. Hmm. Now, if you go to the assembly of the future car, it is, go- it is not going to change all that much. It, the things that happen inside an assembly plant, like the the Ford Oakville complex or the, the Honda plants in Alliston, or the the uh, Chrysler minivan plant here in Windsor, putting a car together is going to be to a good extent the same. And the other thing is, it'll still be rather labor intensive. It, it's been found over the years that robotic trying to apply robotics to things like wiring is not easy. Uh, humans are much better at installing flexible stuff like wiring and, hmm. and hoses and so on. And so a lot of those things will remain in the assembly plants. Um, one last question. We've only got a limited amount of time. Electricity infrastructure, what sort of upgrades are we going to have to do to meet the demand? Uh, that's a big one. Going to have to be a, a lot of um, a lot of capacity will have to be added, but also a lot of infrastructure for charging. You know, if you go down the 401 right now with an electric car and pull into one of those on-route stations, there might be two or three chargers, but there might be 12 or 15 gas pumps. Hmm. And if, if there are three people, you know, if there are 
three or four people ahead of you with electric vehicles, you're going to be sitting there for at least an hour because it takes 20 or 30 minutes to charge up an electric vehicle, even with a high-speed charger. So uh, there, there has to be a lot more chargers uh, built and installed. And, and they also have to be installed in people's homes and apartment buildings and public places and, and, and things like that. So a lot of work to be done there for sure. Peter Fry is with us, Professor of Mechanical Automotive and Materials Engineering, University of Windsor, talking about how the auto industry is changing. Fascinating discussion, Peter. Thanks for the time. Be well. Thank you. Bye, Scott. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. Some uh, wild weather going through the area as uh, everything in the office just went off and came back on again. So we'll keep our fingers crossed and hopefully you can still hear me through the tin cam. All right. Uh, uh, interesting survey coming out and uh, I'd, I'd read you a portion of it if I had it in front of me. But you know what technology is like during a power outage. So anyway, basically what it said was about a third of Canadians and maybe this is now one of the reasons why uh, a third of Canadians wish they could just delete themselves uh, from the internet and just check out and get off and uh, we've seen to be hearing more and more of that in a post pandemic world I remember my mother saying to me uh, before she passed away you kids you're just too dependent on that phone and when that phone goes out uh, you're useless. You can't tie your shoes. And boy, she's not far off. To talk more about all of this, Carmi Levy is with us, technology analyst and journalist. He's with us now. I hope, Carmi, hope you're doing well. I am. Great to be back, Scott. Thanks for having me. So, uh, are you, first of all, are you surprised at this survey that, uh, a third of Canadians, and, you know, I'm sure if you ask them, they really don't mean it, but it's nice to have a survey of something like this. Uh, you know, it's like, I'm not going to buy or shop here anymore because of something else. Uh, are you surprised that you're hearing this? I'm not surprised. This lines up really nicely with my own personal experience, speaking to my own friends, colleagues, family members. Uh, there's a lot of that grumbling going on where people are just not happy with what I like to call the, the ROI of being online, of, being, of using social media, of being digital. Um, and they're becoming increasingly concerned about the negative impacts of all of this digital activity uh, and that the Internet is a, frankly, big and scary place. And so uh, there is a lot of grumbling, but I think there's a wide uh, gulf between what people say they would like to do and what they actually do. It's like a few years ago in the middle of the Facebook Cambridge Analytica scandal pretty much everybody and their dog was saying, well, that's it, I'm out of here. I'm getting off of Facebook. Mm. And, they, and they would share, you, my feed was filled with posts from friends who essentially said, well, this is my goodbye. If you want to keep in touch with me, here's my email address. And, and you know, don't let the door hit you on the way out. And then a few weeks later, very quietly, people started coming back because they kind of realized, well, this is where our lives happen now. And as, as much as we grumble, as much as we hate the insecurity, the, the lack of data integrity, the reckless irresponsibility of these companies, you know, sad truth is, is this is where we live. And this is where all of our friends and family members and colleagues live. And, you know, we just spent the last two and a half years working virtually, and we, most many of us still are. So we kind of need these technologies. So we hate them. They bother us. They're annoying. They keep us up at night. They put us at risk. But going completely dark and living in a digital cave, uh, I don't really think that's feasible for most people. 
You know, it's interesting. We were uh, traveling recently, and with the issues and stuff, you know, I mean, I'm not going to go down that road. But, you know, we were saying to ourselves, you know, imagine if you're an elderly person and trying to manage all of this. Uh, it's quite difficult because so much of it is now automated or online or such. And especially when times are tough, like they have been for the travel industry, it's pretty difficult to navigate the world if you're not fluent in it, especially for the older generations. It absolutely is. I mean, you think about the fact that in many cases, a, a, a digital solution has been put in place and it's completely replaced what used to be paper, what used to be a phone number that you would call. There is no phone number to call anymore. There is no form to fill out anymore. Uh, imagine Canadians coming back into Canada and they have to use the ArriveCan app. Well, you know, what happens to, you know, you know, you know my, my grandmother who's on the airplane who doesn't have a smartphone and doesn't know what to do next? How many people ran into that situation before they got back to the airport? How many people are still running into that today? So we have these technologies that are being rolled out, but we're not really thinking about the relatively small percentages of people uh, who don't have access to these technologies. Either they can't afford them or they just don't know how they work. They're of a certain age, whatever the reason. Uh, we are not accommodating the non-technological among us. And that's a problem as well. We're literally disenfranchising an entire segment of our population, uh, and we're not paying any attention to the consequences. Are we disenfranchising uh, as well this one-third that, you know, uh, theoretically wants to delete themselves? What are they really saying? What are they screaming out loud? I think what they're saying is that uh, they have tried and succeeded to stay safe, to feel safe when they're online, to keep their data from falling into the wrong hands, from not being abused when they sign into it or sign up for uh, a Facebook account or a Google account or a Twitter account or any account, really, um, that they feel that you know once they sign up for something, they, they lose control of their information, that their information is being bought and sold by companies and individuals around the world who they've never even heard of before. Before. And it's a, it's a torrent. It's like standing in the middle of a of a storm whipped beach. There's nothing you can do to, to cause the you know to to stay safe aside from leaving that beach completely. Uh, and so really, what they're saying is is this landscape doesn't work for us, but it's kind of a necessity. It's a, it's a necessary evil. Uh, and they're sending the message that as an industry, as a society, as governments, we need to do more. We need to do better to make sure that we can live our digital lives, but do so safely. And in the end, we just can't let go. I mean, that's what it's all about. Um, we're hearing more and more that people, and you just mentioned this, that are being concerned about their data or sharing their data. There was a time when no one cared about this. So what if I have this coming up? So what if I, this is great, it's all directed to me. Now, are our attitudes changing? They certainly are, and I think the very definition of privacy is changing, and that's a good thing. You know, it used to be, you know, Privacy was, well, as long as my, my medical files are in an envelope in a secured file cabinet at my doctor's office, at a government agency, at the company that I work for, at my bank, my insurance company, then I'm safe. That's fine. But as soon as everything became digital, as soon as everything became connected, as soon as we started connecting to each other and our information on wireless smartphones and other wireless devices, all bets were off and the very concept of privacy, I think, was turned on its head. And I think, you know, the technology has has raced ahead, it's evolved, and it's brought us, let, let's, not, let's not question ourselves, it's brought us incredible benefit, but it's also exposed us to huge risk. It makes it a lot easier for bad actors among us to access information that they have no right to do so and then use it in ways that compromise the way we live. Uh, and so, you know, phishing didn't exist 
to the degree that it does today, or ransomware, uh, or other forms of malware didn't exist before the technology made it so easy for someone halfway around the world to reach out and touch you in ways that you don't want to be touched. So, you know, we, we are living that reality. We're living the benefits of it, but, but it's also exposed us to a whole bunch of risks and it's forcing us to rethink what privacy is. And it certainly doesn't help that the laws that we have on the books to guarantee our privacy, you know, were, 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 were written decades ago, long before any of this technology came along. All right, more on deleting with Carmi Levy to come. Uh, but it looks like we're sucked in for the for the short term and long term. Carmi Levy, technology analyst and journalist. As always, thank you for the time. Be well. Great being here, Scott. Thank you. If Scott Thompson isn't satisfied with an answer, he'll delve into the issue until he is. You're listening to Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. Let's bring in Dan McTagg, President of Canadians for Affordable Energy, former Liberal, uh, Liberal MP, and talk about where our energy prices are. They are dropping today. And is there chatter going on behind the scenes between Germany and Canada regarding our clean natural gas? Dan is with us now. Dan McTagg, President of Canadians for Affordable Energy, former Liberal MP. Dan, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. I am. Good day to be here and uh, great news ahead. So uh, let's get with the gas prices right away because that's what affects people. Uh, they're coming down. What is the reasoning for all this? Why are we hearing this now? Uh, well, I think it's more of a head fake and uh, some pretty bad data coming from the uh, U.S. Department of Energy. One hopes it's not political um, because the problem is, it would appear is that uh, we're seeing a circumstance develop uh, uh, in in the not uh, so recent past in which uh, the demand situation in that country is perceived to be as low as it was during the pandemic. Believe it or not, the uh, Department of Energy actually said that, uh, you know, uh, demand over the past four weeks has been as weak as it, as it was during the period of the COVID lockdown in 2020. This caused a lot of panic among uh, non-physical traders of oil and gas who have been shedding their positions left and right. They also fell for the... Uh, for the uh, uh, the head fake uh, of Biden going to Saudi Arabia and Saudi Arabia saying, yeah, with OPEC, we'll give you 100,000 extra barrels a day. Look, this comes from a group that hasn't been interested in coming back to full production anyway. So they have no interest in helping the United States when the U.S. doesn't want to produce its own oil. And that's pretty clear that they don't, uh, given the uh, green energy of the Biden administration. That aside, uh, we had some pretty uh, suspicious data coming from the weekly petroleum report, and that's caused traders to believe that uh, somehow there's an abundance of fuel out there, abundance of oil out there, a lot of diesel out there, and plenty of oil. So they've been shedding uh, the oil positions by as much as 10 bucks a barrel this week. That's good enough for this week, you and I seeing a 20 cent a liter decrease at the pumps. In other words, we're going to see a 6 cent decrease tomorrow, and we're going to see uh, uh, an 8 cent decrease on Saturday. We got uh, 6 today, 6 tomorrow, 8 on the weekend. Uh, could be another one on Sunday, uh, but the reality is that uh, we'll be paying at the most here in uh, you know uh, Hamilton, the Greater Toronto area, no more than a buck fifty nine point nine and lower come Saturday morning. How long will that last? Well, it depends how long uh, uh, you know nervous traders continue to think that uh, there's no supply, there's no issue with fundamentals. There's a serious problem. It's called uh, a shortage of oil, gasoline. Uh, China continues to uh, make these comments about uh, the fact that they don't want to, uh, they want to have perennial lockdowns. Uh, someone gets a, a sneeze in that part of the world, and uh, they, they will go into lockdowns, which effectively has 
uh, traders, uh, and I'm talking paper traders. These are the folks that are day traders. Um, these are folks that aren't directly involved in any way, shape, or form with analysis, other than you know reading some headlines and thinking that they're all bearish. Uh, I suspect that we're going to see another day or two of lower prices, but uh, I can't see oil dropping to what it is now. It's valued at about what we saw back at the beginning of February, long before Russia invaded uh, Ukraine. Uh, these numbers uh, simply suggest to oil producers not to produce oil and more dangerously uh, set us up for even greater demand, which could put uh, you know significant uh, pressure on uh, limited supplies of oil, gasoline, diesel, jet fuel, and the like. So uh, it's a short-term gain, but it's going to be long-term pain. As I've said to uh, a couple of others, I've said this is going to snap back violently, and it's going to be very painful when it happens. Is there something going on behind the scenes between Canada and Germany in relations to energy? Uh, We're certainly seeing the Ukraine uh, ambassador to Canada testifying at the House of Commons Committee today about uh, the Russian turbine that went back after being serviced in Canada and such, and, 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 and Germany wanting that to make sure that there was no sort of interruption in energy. Is there any chatter between the two countries for cleaner Canadian natural gas? Well, there is chatter. Uh, the fact is Canada cannot fulfill it, not in the short term anyways. Um, this is a country that had, what, 17, 18, 19 LNG projects where we would actually take the natural gas that we have, compress it, liquefy it, and send it to the rest of the world um, long before the Americans did. Now they are the number one export because Canada sat on its, uh, its duff and allowed this, uh, you know, environmentalists, many of them funded from external outside organizations, who call themselves charities, to block every single pipeline. And one thing that you and I have discussed, but very little media and Canadians want to talk about, is the exceptional terrorism, environmental terrorism that went on to try to destroy the only one LNG project that's on its way, the coastal mm-hmm. gas pipeline heading, heading its way to Kitimat. That's still a couple of years from being built, so we can't come to the world's rescue. It's all talk, but what it should be, uh, between Germany that has gone down this rabbit hole of uh, ex- you know climate extremism and shutting down all of its nuclear, shutting down its coal, shutting down its oil, uh, foregoing its natural gas and getting Russia to supply its uh, its its, its uh, predominant amount of uh, natural gas that it uses, and Canada saying pretty much the same thing. Uh, you have two clowns basically saying um, we're an example of what you shouldn't do, and a country like Canada saying, "Hey, we're there. We want to also do the same thing." It's it's bizarre to watch, but it's actually. Uh, in in some way, uh, poetic justice, because both governments of Germany, with its energy wind, in which they put all their eggs in one windmill and solar basket, and Canada, which wants to do the same, despite the fact it's a very cold nation with a proven abundance of the world's, probably one of of the world's greatest energy assets, sitting on their duff saying, no, no, we don't want to do this, we want to go down the way Germany did. So, uh, misery loves company. Uh, It's going to be a spectacle to watch uh, Olaf Schultz make his way to Canada, uh, begging for something that he knows Canada can't provide because wokeism is uh, very much the way in which Canadians have uh, uh, have supported over the past couple of years voting Liberal, NDP, Green, and Bloc. A uh, fascinating article in the Post today, the collateral damage of Trudeau's war on climate change, comparing yeah. it to the war on drugs in the United States and how effective it was. A uh, very bizarre comparison. Dan McTagg with us, President of Canadians for Affordable Energy, former Liberal MP. As always, thanks for the time. Be well. And no guessing up till Saturday. Will do. Thanks, Scott. 
You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. Some uh, bizarre stories coming out of Ottawa yesterday, and uh, obviously not much to them, but uh, has made us wonder how or if uh, security in and around the Ottawa area, and specifically Parliament Hill and the uh, Prime Minister's residence, have changed since uh, the convoy and all of that uh, situation that happened way back when involving the Emergencies Act. Let's bring in Phil Gursky, President of Borealis Threat and Risk Consulting, Distinguished Fellow with the University of Ottawa's National Security Program and former CSIS analyst is with us now. Phil, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. I am, Scott. How are you today? I'm doing good. Thanks so much. Obviously, two very bizarre stories unrelated yesterday. Uh, one kind of serious, one kind of humorous. Um, I guess we can dismiss the amphibious bus that uh, crashed the gates at 24 Sussex uh, with the with the funny face on the front. Uh, but there was also one earlier on where someone actually did try to bridge, uh, or sorry, breach the gates at uh, at uh, uh, Parliament Hill. What can you tell us uh, about that? And are you noticing a difference in security around Ottawa as a result of all of this? Okay, so you're absolutely right. The, the one at the uh, Prime Minister's residence was probably an accident. That's what Ottawa police are saying. The one at Parliament Hill, Scott, is a little more interesting. Um, it, it occurred at 3.30 in the morning. So I don't know if who expects anyone to be on Parliament Hill at 3.30 in the morning, Scott. I know there's it's pretty mm. empty when I go by there. Um, what to make of it? I, certainly, you know, you know uh, Ottawa police and their partners, to the best of my knowledge, have still basically shut down Wellington Street, which is a street right in front of Parliament in the aftermath of the convoy of January and February of this year. That may strike people as a bit of, you know, a bit autocratic, a bit too much of a reaction. But I point out that most capital cities in in the Western world do not allow traffic in front of their houses of Parliament or Congress, whatever. So we're kind of, you know, I think adopting some good security measures. The problem is, is it's a constant balance between openness in a liberal sector democracy and keeping people safe. And that's not an easy thing to do. It's not as easy as people say it is. I have confidence that the police are are, are doing the jobs to the best of their ability, but you know, they get criticized for doing and criticized for not doing. So it's hard to win when you work in national security, unfortunately. Have you noticed a difference since the convoy? I remember back in the, you know, years and years and years ago, driving around Ottawa and thinking, and this is when the prime minister still uh, resided at 24 Sussex and thinking, my goodness, I mean, he's right there. I mean, the only thing that seemed to be there was an RCMP vehicle. Now, of course, all of that has changed and the, you know, the, the residences are a lot more fortified even around uh, Parliament Hill. But have you noticed since the convoy, if things have changed, uh, other than, of course, the, the the street remaining closed, which, you know, many may say might be a good thing for Ottawa just to open it up as a promenade. Mm-hmm. It actually predates that by quite some time, Scott. If you remember back to 2014 when the attack on the National Cenotaph, when Michael Zahapibo killed Nathan Cirillo and then yeah. stormed Parliament before he was shot. That was a real, I think, rude awakening for a lot of people in Ottawa, not necessarily those of us who worked at CSIS or in the RCMP, that this is real and it can happen. I mean, Zahapibo got within a few meters of then Prime Minister Stephen Harper in Parliament. And I think a lot of lessons were drawn from that, that we have to take this thing seriously. And so I think you've started to notice uh, an increased security perimeter on a variety of places, including the Prime Minister's residence on uh, 24 Sussex, and now the he's with the Governor General. But again, you know, you're asking these these organizations to to prepare for any eventuality, and and that's simply impossible. And at the same time, we have an openness in this country we've had for 155 years that we treasure. So again, as I said earlier, it's really hard to maintain that that balance between wanting Canadians to have access to their leaders, which they should have at the same time protecting them from people who might want to do them harm. So I I think we're doing the balance right, Scott, in all honesty. 
Uh, I remember a uh, an interview with Christia Freeland a, a few weeks back, and um, and she was talking about meeting with her U.S. counterparts, and they were surprised that she wasn't traveling with more of a security detail. She talked about how she got on her bike and literally rode to work that morning. Uh, d- does that sort of stuff need to be revisited? Is it as open as what she's portraying it to be? I don't think so. It, you know, way back in the 90s, or, or, or perhaps it was the 80s, the Swedish Prime Minister Olaf Palma, Sweden was known for its openness, Scott. He was assassinated, and the, the assassin was never found. And that had a huge impact on Swedish society. But to the best of my knowledge, Sweden's still a pretty open society, even this day, 40 years later. I, I don't think we want to go there. I, again, there have to be necessary precautions when there is intelligence to suggest a threat. Obviously, the Prime Minister, Governor General need protection to an nth degree because of their positions. But do we really want a society where everyone is locked down all the time in, in terms of security detail? I, I don't know. I mean, you know, my specialty is not in, in VIP protection. I, I work for people who were in that. But I think that, it's again, it's it's a very delicate dance you have to play. And, I, you know, I'm not sure we want to go, go there because then people would complain, well, we don't have access to our leaders anymore. So to me, it should be intelligence-led. If CSIS or the RCMP have information to suggest there's a real threat, yes, you'll see a markup in terms of security. But the rest of the time, it'll be in the background a little less obvious, but they'll still be there. But at the same time, they want to allow these leaders to interact with Canadians on a daily basis. Uh, obviously, we've seen uh, Nancy Pelosi, House Speaker, into Taiwan. Lots of chatter around that and the reaction to it. Uh, would CSIS have the red flags up for this? I doubt it. I mean, I wasn't a China specialist, Scott. I was more of an Islamist terrorism specialist when I was at CSIS. But a lot of uh, panic over this. I mean, yeah, China shot off some missiles, but... As I said in an earlier program uh, yesterday, I mean, China is bullying people. And you don't, if you give in to bullies, they simply bully you some more. So I tip my hat to Pelosi. Many people didn't. U.S. intelligence advised that she didn't go. But, I mean, you know, we've got to hold China's feet to the fire with what it's doing around the world. And, yeah, times are sensitive, but times are always sensitive, Scott. My God, you know, we've been a nuclear world for, for 75 years now. And I, I, I get a little worried when... When self-styled experts say this is going to be the one, you know, the the one straw that breaks the camel's back, and we haven't seen that. In fact, I've seen some analysis already today that, hmm, you know what, China shut off some missiles. We expected that. We'll, we'll move on, and then you know, until the next crisis happens, kind of thing. So let's not always give in to this panic, this panic scenario. I don't think it's very helpful. Phil Gursky, President of Borealis Threat and Risk Consulting, Distinguished Fellow with the University of Ottawa's National Security Program, former CSIS analyst. As always, Phil, thanks for the time. Be well. You too, sir. We'll talk again soon. We certainly know that uh, over the last uh, couple of days, uh, Speaker of the House in the, in the United States, Nancy Pelosi, visited Taiwan. Uh, China upset with that, obviously claiming uh, still ownership over Taiwan as you know it conducts its own independent business. China reacts with precision missile strikes on Thursday off the waters, off the coast, rather, of uh, Taiwan as part of a military exercise, which has raised tensions in the region uh, as a result of uh, the visit by the Speaker of the House. To talk more about all of this, Charles Burton with us, Senior Fellow, Center for Advancing Canada's Interests Abroad at the Macdonald-Laurier Institute, and is with us now. Charles, thank you for the time, as always. Much appreciated. It's good to speak with you again, Scott. So, Charles, your thoughts on the visit by Nancy Pelosi and the reaction from China to pretty much surround uh, uh, Taiwan with some missile strikes? Well, you know, before Ms. Pelosi um, decided to go to Taiwan, the president of China, Xi Jinping, had a, a video call with Joe Biden that extended over two hours. 
And in that call, he said that it was unacceptable for there to be official contacts between the government of Taiwan and um, the U.S. because, you know, that according to China, that's not a legitimate government. It's it's a rogue regime, and Taiwan should be a province of China ruled by the Communist Party out of Beijing. So he said, uh, you know, this is playing with fire, and if you play with fire, you will perish in the fire. So it was pretty lurid uh, sort of uh, hmm. diplomatic discourse. And uh, it didn't make any difference at all. Of course, you know, we're not going to back down because of threats. And Biden said that Pelosi going to Taiwan was her own decision, that the Congress is independent of the office of the presidency, and he can't tell her where she should go or not go. Chinese completely don't don't buy this uh, separation of power stuff because, you know, they don't have any separation of powers there and they think it's just a sham. So she went and she affirmed support for Taiwan democracy. And I think that the Chinese feel that they've lost a lot of face, uh, face because they didn't, you know, the United States didn't do what they wanted. And as a result, I think to largely to appease domestic opinion in China, uh, Xi Jinping had to do something big. And so what they've done is essentially blockaded Taiwan uh, with military exercises on six different planes. And, you know, um, about 300 container ships are having trouble getting into port. And it's difficult to, to get through the international waters of the Taiwan Strait, which is you know important shipping a route for Japan and South Korea and so on. And uh, apparently they've also engaged in some cyber attacks on um, the internet in Taiwan. And, and um, you know, they did some sanctioning of agricultural commodity exports. Like basically, you know, Mr. Xi is desperate to try and come up with some, some means to do something that will really damage Taiwan and is sort of grasping at straws. So they're firing a lot of missiles into the sea is essentially what it comes down to. But it's dangerous stuff. And it could be indicative of what China will do to Taiwan in future when it decides it's time to, to as they say, bring Taiwan into the embrace of the motherland. And that, that would be uh, a blockade and hybrid warfare. And so it, it begs the question is of what does the West do and where does Canada stand in this? Are we prepared to go to war uh, with China over Taiwan? Considering what happened to Hong Kong, is it inevitable that Taiwan ends up in the same fate? I mean, is is China just now uh, experimenting with Taiwan uh, under the, you know, slipping under the radar of Russia's invasion of Ukraine? If they can get away with it, we can get away with it. Yeah, I think that that's basically it. You know, they look at our response to the Russian invasion of Ukraine, which has been clearly a bit half-hearted, and it looks like the Russians you know, are gradually gaining ground in Ukraine and we don't see any path where we'll be pushing them back as far as I know. And so the the Chinese feel that, you know, that the West says, uh, talks a good line, but when it comes down to their own interests, like economic interests, they back off. So I think China is getting the message from Ukraine that this might be a good time to resolve the Taiwan issue. And you know, the world is breaking up into two camps again with the Russians and the Chinese on one side, along with their allies, and the liberal democratic West that believes in the rules-based order on the other side. 
And the Ukraine thing has brought China and Russia closer together because China is helping the Russians to buck the sanctions regime by purchasing uh, Russian energy products and, and helping them financially. And Russia's been providing some military technologies to China that previously hadn't given to China. And so we could see a situation where, you know, Russian, Russia becoming beholden to China because of the Western sanctions would support China in an action on Taiwan. And I mean, you know, there's, there's a larger issue here. There's, of course, it's a geostrategic problem of Taiwan being in a very critical place. But there's also the question of if Taiwan ceases to be a vibrant democratic supporter of the rules-based order with, you know, free elections and an independent rule of law, and is absorbed by China, what's next? You know, it's the same as, as with Ukraine. If, China, if Russia succeeds in U Ukraine, does that mean they'll go into Moldova and Slovakia next? You know, it, it, if we don't draw a line here and put an end to this, then they start to tip the balance in the favor of autocracy and, and everything that's bad in politics and, and uh, you know, the Canadian security and our democratic way of life could, could be threatened in our own lifetimes. What's keeping China from taking Taiwan? I mean, are we naive to think that the same thing won't happen to them that happened to Hong Kong? Oh, I mean, there's no question if China um, assumes control of Taiwan that it's, it's going to be uh, an end to any notion of freedom and democracy in Taiwan. And the people in Taiwan unlike the people in Hong Kong, really don't identify as Chinese. They see themselves as Taiwanese. And, you know, they, they've never been part of the People's Republic of China. And really, they haven't been part of China um, ever. You know, they were a mm. Japanese colony from 1895 right. to the end of the war. And then, and then uh, the, the nationalist regime went there after that. So, uh, you know, it would be a much more challenging situation than Hong Kong. Um, it 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 would just be a nightmare, frankly, on all sides, and and I don't think that the West should let it happen because the people of Taiwan should determine their own political future. That that's just that's just the, the you know the basis of human rights, and it's clear the people in Taiwan do not want to come under the the Communist Party in Beijing's repressive rule. Charles Burton with us, senior fellow with the Center for Advancing Canada's Interest Abroad at the McDonnell Laurie Institute, talk about uh, talking about Taiwan and China conducting uh, precision, uh, precision missile strikes around Taiwan uh, as a result of U.S. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi's visit. As always, Charles, thanks for the time. Be well. Good to speak with you. Take care. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. All right. The global pandemic has uh, twisted a lot of things around. A lot of people doing a lot of things differently than they were. Priority changes, that sort of thing. The word pivot being used a lot. Uh, and here's another interesting, perhaps, sidebar of all of this. Uh, and that is homeowners who are renting their pools in their backyards to individuals and their families, what have you, to use for the afternoon or what have you if they are not using it. Uh, however, that has some people, perhaps the neighbors, a little cranky, and that story has hit uh, Hamilton. Ward 10 Councillor Maria Pearson says the residents who have been renting their pools for parties through an app called uh, Swimply have clogged up the streets with traffic, to name just one of the issues. To talk more about all of this, City of Hamilton Councillor Ward 10, Maria Pearson, she's with us now. Maria, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. I'm absolutely well. Yes, sir. Thank you. Thank you for the opportunity to speak today. 
So this is uh, a fascinating issue. It seems like a neat idea at the onset, but but what is happening? Why has this become an issue? Well, firstly, um, uh, rental out, renting out of pools is a, is a business, and you are in a residential zone. You can't operate a business in a residential zone. Number one, number two, public pools have different requirements and legislation and rules that have to be followed. Uh, um, as opposed to somebody's little neighborhood backyard swimming pool. Um, why it's become an issue? Because you now have an operation going on at all hours of the day and night and into the next morning. Um, you have uh, congestion on the street, parking, parking infractions, noise, alcohol, um, the full gambit in a residential neighborhood that you know, the neighbors never anticipated this being something that would be going on in their backyards. I can certainly see what you have just described as being a problem, but it also seems to be one incredibly extreme to, to, to one side of this. Um, uh, you know, and it kind of reminds me of the housing issue and how we thought before COVID-19 when nobody was allowed to do anything and then things slowly started to open up and we realized that we could manage these without, you know, having to have bylaws or be babysat. Is there a happy medium here somewhere, Councillor? Well, no, I'm going to say there isn't because it's it's a, it's a it's a business and you can't operate a business unless it's a home occupation which has strict rules in a residential neighborhood. So, um, you know, Yeah, I, I guess I understand what you're saying, counselor, yeah. but there used to be a bylaw about where you could have your patios with restaurants and COVID-19 changed all of this. Obviously, a global pandemic has changed this as well. So, rather than one extreme or the other, is there not some room for compromise the way there has been for many of uh the things that have changed post COVID-19? So, I haven't had any requests to change. Um we don't have a bylaw because it's it's just not allowed. It's a public pool and there's different regulations for a public pool so those are the two it comes under the public pool requirements and it comes under the home occupation which it does not meet so no it's not something that i would say is um you know an earth changer that this is going to change i have to sympathize with the neighborhood i mean you can well imagine when you um you come home at the end of the day of a long day of working uh, you want to be able to get into your driveway. You want to be able to sit and enjoy your backyard and not listen to a whole bunch of, um, you know, potential rabble rousing. I mean, I've had situations where, you know, they rent the barbecues, they rent a ba- they have a basketball court, they have an outdoor TV, they have a video screen. That's not what you expect to have in your neighborhood in the vicinity of your home. You have the right, people have the right to quiet enjoyment of their property. And, um, you know, this, this takes it over that limit. So this is the concern that's, that's been raised. And uh, I certainly appreciate all the investigation that staff did on this. I mean, I can tell you honestly, um, I've had situations with uh, operators in my ward where there's up, upwards of 50 plus guests attending at any one time. Well, no, this is how, very similar to the, this is, no, I understand what you're saying. I understand what you're saying, Maria, but I'm also speaking for the people. I'm just playing devil's advocate here. Yep. Uh, not everybody that rents their pool or rents their home is going to have a massive 200-person party at their home. That's the point that I'm making here. So uh, I understand that the bylaw is the bylaw, but bylaws are changed all the time. Is there any room for compromise here? What's the difference to a homeowner who has the same party? They will 
be shut down as well. What if all of this is done within the noise bylaws and no crowded streets and an average manageable situation like a family coming in of five as mm-hmm. opposed to a party of 50 in hot tubs and whatever? We're sort of talking from one extreme to the other. What I'm saying is there a way that this can be managed so if perhaps a family who doesn't own a pool can maybe rent one for 100 bucks with a couple of members of their family and have a nice pleasant oh, day without irritating everybody available <laughs> isn't it i i guess for those that it's convenient for but you know again I, i'm just looking for somebody to think outside the box here maria that's all so i my uh, thinking outside the box is the fact that it would be very difficult to control again you're dealing with a public pool now and the parameters are to- totally different you're in a residential neighborhood I have not had anybody reach out to say, you know what, change the bylaws or change the regulations. And the regulation as far as the public pool is not something we can change. That's provincial. All right. Uh, hiding behind the bylaws, Maria. That's what it sounds well, like you're doing, but I'm, I understand exactly why you're doing it. And you're doing it in my ward in the city I, of Hamilton. I, I, I understand, uh, but uh, Maria Pearson with us, City of Hamilton, Councillor Ward 10. No compromise. It's nope. no renting out your pool. Maria, thanks for the time. Thank Be well. You. Take care. All right. Uh, you know, that's, uh, you know, I'm not saying to have parties. I wouldn't like that either. But I think there is room for expansion of, of, of you know, the mind thinking outside the box. I think this is what people are tired of with politics uh, is, uh, again, I understand people's rights, but everyone has rights. Can we not do it and manage it in a simple way where it doesn't? disrupt the rest of the neighborhood is that not possible i think it is thanks for listening to the hamilton today podcast you can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from three to six on 900 chml and online at 900 chml.com all right that's it for us thanks for listening as always greatly appreciated thanks to the two wills and dave and diana in the newsroom uh as always we leave it to you the taxpaying customer to have the last word mike called in earlier and said hey in 2018 donald trump and i'm by no means a donald trump fan at the UN addressed issues with Germany and their Russian gas dependency. He was laughed at by the German reps. And now Canada being caught in the middle of the Russian oil issues. We're the bad guy instead of Germany? Eat some humble pie, Merkel. Oh my. Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance (laughs) recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.